Today we're going to be returning to the book of Exodus, chapter 6 and verse 28. My aim is to preach through nine of the ten plagues, 628 through 1029. I have more sermon than I have time. So I'm going to try to work with that. So with that said, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help again as we begin here. Our gracious Lord, there is none who is like you. You define yourself and you are entirely other and unique and holy, self-existent, self-defining. And God forbid that we would ever enter into the idolatry of trying to define you ourselves or trying to get you to fit into our definitions or how we understand things. This text of these plagues that make yourself known, especially your wrath, especially that you harden hearts. And these things are difficult to believe. They're not things that we would have concluded or guessed or presupposed ourselves, but it is how you have revealed yourself that you are God and there is none like you that you are God and there is no other. I pray that you would help us to believe in you as you are, to speak about you as you are and as you have revealed yourself. I feel an incredible insufficiency to preach these things and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to do that for the sake of the glory of your name and for the sake of your people knowing you as you are, and all the benefits and joy that comes from that. Amen. Last time I was preaching, we looked through Exodus chapters 4 through 6, a section in Exodus where it looked like everything could just fall apart in God's plan. Now you have God's chosen leader, Moses. He's questioning God, and then he's contradicting him. Then you have God giving three signs through Moses that were a testimony against Israel's unbelief. Things didn't look good for this would-be leader or this soon-to-be nation. This leader himself needed to be delivered before he could be used in delivering another people. So what God does is he brings to Moses a personal Passover. He saves him through circumcision and blood atonement. And this is the kind of salvation that was needed and that Moses would become an instructor of, that others would need circumcision and blood atonement. But it also shows us in God's saving of Moses that he has no problem straightening out crooked branches in Abraham's family tree, whether it be Moses or the sons of Israel or even us today who have been grafted into the blessing that has extended from Abraham. We also saw that there's another big problem that stands in the way of God's plan, at least from our perspective. That's Pharaoh, the anti-Sabbath serpent who mocked God in Exodus 5-2 saying, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Well, here was God's game plan for all of this that he had ordained from long ago to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen. Well, why did God do that? Well, because God needed Pharaoh to hold out to the very end. He didn't need him to give out on plague three or six or nine. He had to strengthen Pharaoh to hold out all the way to the end so God could reveal everything that he wanted to about who he is so that he can show that within his glory, that he's the one who controls everything from the water to the land to the sky to even the human heart of Pharaoh himself, and that he doesn't share his glory with anybody. He doesn't share his glory with Pharaoh, who claimed that he was the creator and controller of all things in creation. He doesn't share his glory with the so-called Egyptian gods that everybody within the superpower of Egypt believed in. But what God does with the clay of these vessels of wrath is that he hardens them and he crushes them. 
God is the God who crushes all idolatry. He crushes all of this for his exclusive glory. And perhaps in hearing this text read and preached, it will crush idolatry in your own heart, misunderstandings that you had about God in your own heart, but to be brought to the blessing of knowing him as he is. The result of God's work in all of these things, you can see in Exodus 7, 5, was that this was to make him known. 7, 5 says, then the Egyptians, after all these great judgments take place, shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. The way that God makes himself known is judgment and wrath in this case, and he wants to be known this way. And how he does this is by showing that he is sovereign over all creation. What God reveals here in making himself known in this book of Exodus, which the book of Exodus is the book of the name. It's the book of God's name, what he is like. This is God 101 class. These are the very basic things you need to know about God to understand who he is. And what he teaches about who he is to Egypt is that God alone has glory. That's going to be one of my major points, that God alone has glory. Pharaoh doesn't have glory. The Egyptian gods don't have glory. But he's also wanting to make something known to Moses and Israel. And that's this. God is sovereign over evil. God is self-defining. If he chooses to reveal that he not only, that he's not the one who merely allows evil, but he controls it, which is sometimes the way we tend to talk about these things because it's so shocking to us to read, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen. And we, sometimes we look at that and we're like, well, it can't be like that. I mean, maybe he just like allowed it to happen or he just kind of let Pharaoh do it himself. Well, that's not what God says in this text as we're going to see, but we're going to also see he says it a bunch. He repeats it over and over and over because it's not the human tendency to believe that God is like this. Because when we hear these things, we think it can't work like that. We're somewhat offended by it. We want to emphasize that he's merciful, but we don't want to also remember that he's wrathful. But as God reveals his sovereignty here, it's important to understand what we mean by this word. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're not talking about his power to do something. When we talk about God's power, we use the word power. And we're not talking about God's providential control of things. You know, when we talk about that, we use words like providence or his controlling of all things. So what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about his sovereignty? We're talking about God's right, his right to do what he wants with what he made. He made everything in creation. He owns it. He can do whatever he wants with it, if it's water, land, sky, or even the hearts of men. Sovereignty is about God's right or God's authority. A famous Bible verse from Romans chapter 9, 9.21, conveys this idea. It says, or does not the potter have the authority over the clay? That's the idea of sovereignty. Does he not have the sovereignty over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does God not have the right to make somebody like Pharaoh and to harden his heart and to do all of these things to reveal that part of his glory is that he wants to make his wrath known? The moment that we begin to talk about God differently than he talks about himself is to immediately enter into idolatry. And sometimes we do this unaware, sometimes we do this accidentally. I remember a seminary professor that I had in class, we were going through these texts in Jeremiah and he would read them and he says, God decreed this, God ordained this. And then he would say, gentlemen, the reason that God allowed this to happen was this. And this particular professor, we would uh, carpool together 
And while we were in the car one day, I asked him, well, why do, you, why do we use the language of saying that God allowed this when the Bible verses say God decreed or God ordained? And he did not say anything to me. He just talked about something else. But then what I noticed in class is that he never used the word allowed anymore. <laughs> he didn't use permissive language about how God acts in the world. He didn't present him as the allower. He presented him as the controller, the one who ordains, the one who decrees. And this is how God speaks about himself in Scripture. You're also going to see in this text that what's repeated here is not only about knowing that God is sovereign over evil, but all of these happen, all of these things happen as Yahweh had spoken which we would expect that of the God of creation. You start reading your Bible, it says, God said this, and it was so. God said this, and it was so. That keeps happening for the rest of the Bible. That keeps happening for the rest of history and existence. Everything is as God has spoken. Everything works according to the counsel of the Creator's will. The one who told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God didn't just allow this to happen. He ordained it to happen, and it couldn't be any different than that. But he also ordained to free Israel, to magnify his great wrath towards those that oppose him and his great grace toward those who didn't even want him. He is the God of creation and covenant. Do you know him as he is? Do you know this God the Bible God, the creator God? And do you know him and speak about him the way that he has made himself known? That he's not sovereign only over the good things that happen, but he's sovereign and controls all evil. That he's so sovereign and strong that he can control the heart of the ruler of the world's greatest superpower. That he can make every knee in heaven and on earth bow at his name. Moses and Israel don't understand this about God. And it's difficult for us to understand this because we try to fit him into our human experience. But we should never begin with trying to think about God as him being like us. To think, well, God's kind of like me and how I would respond to situations, but he like, has superpowers when he does it. But what scripture teaches is that God is totally other. He's totally unlike us. He can't be compared to anything. And this truth that God is sovereign over evil is something that produces humility in us. That we see that it's ultimately God who defines himself. But it also produces in us hope because we know that everything's going to be exactly how he says that it's going to be. That there isn't a plan B. That things aren't going to maybe turn out a little bit differently in the future. That when God says that he's going to destroy and deliver, it's going to happen exactly like that according to his plan. But we need that sort of humility to trust him and to actually live like God is in control and that we're not. And to see that this is a certain hope, not a possible hope, that God will carry out the retribution that he has promised for those that have opposed him. And part of the comfort and hope of understanding that God has absolute total control over evil helps us to understand why he can actually save us. Because if he can't actually control evil, he can only maybe save you. But if he can absolutely control evil, he can absolutely save, absolutely redeem. He can absolutely destroy the enemy and his weapon. He can destroy Satan and death if he's in complete control, and he is. This is why God can actually save us from something and to something else, just like he does with the Israelites in breaking their slavery to Pharaoh to bring them into slavery unto himself, which is why he can totally change our identity in being children of wrath to becoming children of God so that we no longer identify with the wrong king and the wrong kingdom. God can make us free and he can keep us. And when he does this delivering redemption work, what's revealed is that he is Yahweh, your God. There isn't another. There's nobody like him. And God knew these things, and he knew what he was doing, but Israel didn't. 
And God is working out all of these things so this knowing of what he is like would be understood, not only to Moses and Israel, but to Pharaoh and Egypt and to all the nations and to the end of the earth. Moses and Israel here need to know that Yahweh is sovereign over evil so that they can understand how deep his covenant love is for them. So as we read through this section of scripture starting in Exodus 6.28, listen to the repetition of what God says that he's going to do to Pharaoh's heart and how he's saying what he wants to be made known about himself and how everything happens as he has spoken. Let's begin in Exodus 6.28. Now it happened on the day when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I am Yahweh. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am speaking to you. But Moses said before Yahweh, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I set you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will set my hand upon Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst, So Moses and Aaron did it. As Yahweh commanded them, thus they did. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Work a miraculous wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as Yahweh had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did similar with their secret arts. And each one threw down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard with firmness. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I am about to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood, and the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will be weary of drinking water from the Nile. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did thus, as Yahweh had commanded. And he raised up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. And the fish that were in the Nile died And the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. Yet the magicians of Egypt did the same 
with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not set his heart even on this. But all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. And the Nile will swarm with frogs, and they will go up and come into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and on your people and all your servants. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did the same with their secret arts. They caused the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat Yahweh that he may cause the frogs to depart from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moses said to Pharaoh, May the honor be yours to tell me when I shall entreat for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses that they may remain only in the Nile. Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. And the frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried out to Yahweh concerning the frogs which he had set upon Pharaoh. So Yahweh did According to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them up in heaps, and the land became foul. Then Pharaoh saw that there was relief, and he hardened his heart with firmness and did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians did the same with their secret arts in order to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not listen to them, as Yahweh had spoken. And Yahweh said to Moses, rise early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will make a distinction for the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will happen. Then Yahweh did so. And there came heavy swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It is not right to do so, 
For we will sacrifice to Yahweh our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he says to us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Entreat for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall entreat Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only may Pharaoh not deal deceitfully again, and not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh, and Yahweh did according to the word of Moses and caused the swarms of flies to depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Then Pharaoh hardened his heart with firmness, this time also, and he did not let the people go. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will come with a very heavy pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Yahweh also set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. So Yahweh did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel not one died, and Pharaoh sent. And behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened with firmness, and he did not let the people go. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses toss it toward the sky and the side of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses tossed it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have caused you to stand, in order to show you my power, and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will rain down very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So now, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, the hail will come down on them and they will die. 
the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Yahweh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who did not consider in his heart the word of Yahweh left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be hail on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky and Yahweh gave forth thunder and hail and fire went down to the earth and Yahweh rained down hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, from man to beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one and I and my people are the wicked ones. Entreat Yahweh for God's thunder and hell are too much and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be hell no longer that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear Yahweh God, that you do not yet fear Yahweh God. Now the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck down, for they are late ripening. And Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to Yahweh, and the thunder and the hell ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. But Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, so he sinned again and hardened his heart with firmness, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened with strength, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken by the hand of Moses. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants with firmness that I may set these signs of mine among them and that you may recount in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt severely with the Egyptians and how I put my signs among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. Then Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped what remains for you from the hill, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians shall be filled, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. For from the day that they, went, they came upon the earth until this day, and he turned and went out from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old. 
with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for it is a feast of Yahweh for us. Then he said to them, Thus may Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. See, for evil is on your faces. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve Yahweh, for that is what you are seeking. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, all that the hell has left remaining. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locust, and the locust came up over all the land of Egypt and rested on the territory of Egypt. They were very heavy. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you, so now Please forgive my sin only this once and entreat Yahweh your God that he would only cause this death to depart from me. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated Yahweh. So Yahweh changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust remained and all the territory of Egypt. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their places of habitation. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve Yahweh. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, you must also let us have in our hands sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to Yahweh our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us, not a hoof shall remain behind. For we shall take some of them to serve Yahweh our God. And until we come there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve Yahweh. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you have spoken, I shall never see your face again. Beginning this section of Scripture, we see this transition of Moses becoming self-focused to God-focused. He starts by asking, you know, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? Which God's plan wasn't for Pharaoh to listen. This isn't something about Moses and his word. This was going to be about God and God's word. And there's this tension of unbelief that remains in this section of scripture where you're wondering if Moses and Israel are going to believe and you're wondering, is Pharaoh ever going to listen? How are these things going to turn out in the end? Well, as you can see, God is refining the faith of Moses. He's growing in his trust in God to 
become the kind of leader that he would need to be for the sons of Israel. And God signals his plan for Pharaoh and Egypt, saying that he's going to destroy them, and that he's going to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. God even refers to Pharaoh's land as his land to communicate Pharaoh has authority in the sight of people for now, but God's going to make it known that that land is actually his land. Pharaoh isn't the creator or owner of anything. You see also that what happens with Moses is that God sets him in chapter 7, verse 1, he says to Moses, see, I set you as God to Pharaoh. Now, what you're seeing here is the contrast of God's word versus Satan's word, ultimately. That Moses would be used as God's representative of God's word, where Moses was, or where Pharaoh was seen as the one who spoke the word of the gods, as the God of gods to the people. Moses is the ultimate source of divine revelation, and Pharaoh the ultimate source of demonic revelation. What's continuing here is that Genesis 3.15 seed battle of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman, of God's truth versus Satan's lies. And God's role in this as the creator and controller of all things, one of the specific things that he says that he'll do is harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would teach to Moses in Israel that he's sovereign over evil, even evil like that, even the evil of one man who looks like he actually controls everything on the planet, the ruler of the one nation to whom everybody else on the planet depends. God is sovereign over the evil, even that which comes from Pharaoh's heart. And why does God do this? Well, it says in verse 3 of chapter 7 that he would harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness for this reason, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God has something that he wants to reveal about himself, things that he wants to make known and It can't happen unless he hardens Pharaoh's heart to hold out to the very end. God will make Pharaoh temporarily unbreakable to reveal all that he is. He'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh won't listen, so that God alone will get the glory for everything that happens in every last plague. And he says after these great judgments happen in verse 5 of chapter 7 that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. This is how God disciples people. And in this way, he's discipling the nations who are involved or observing this, that when God brings about his salvation, it includes not only deliverance, but also destruction. His salvation is through judgment. His salvation includes both deliverance and destruction. And then there's this kind of aside which is given about how old Moses and Aaron are. These guys are 80 and 83. And why mention this? These guys are old. That's the point. These things are not happening because of the youthful strength of these guys. Uh, These things are happening because of God's mighty hand. This is to emphasize that God gets all of the glory. This is to emphasize that God gets all of the glory even if you're old. That your age doesn't matter if the ageless mighty God has ordained to get glory out of your life. So maybe you're 80 or 83 and you're really just getting started in glorifying the Lord. Well, we have the reoccurrence of the staff, which is turned into a serpent, which he had talked about last time, how this is a a way to show God's strength. The staff represented God's strength. Well, what does he have strength over? The serpent. He has strength over the serpent which he made, which was a beast of the field in the garden. The serpent is God's servant. 
He, he controls the serpent as his servant. It can, the serpent can only do what God ordains and decrees that the serpent do. He controls it completely. And you can remember how when Moses first saw the staff turn into a serpent that he was frightened and he ran away. You know, this isn't like some little snake that you see on a camping trip and think, it might be cool if we catch it. (laughs) When Scripture talks about sea monsters, serpents, dragons, Leviathan, Rahab, all of these sort of things, this is what it's talking about. It's a fierce sort of dragon. This was something that people feared and ran away from. This wasn't some interesting little creature slithering around. That God is teaching Moses that he has strength over that. He has strength over the serpent dragon, over Leviathan, Rahab. And this sign of the staff turned to the serpent would test and testify. It would test Moses and Israel to see if they actually believe him. But it would also testify they don't actually believe him. But what this shows is how strong and supreme the one true God is. He's so strong and he's so supreme that he can control a serpent like that. He can control a pharaoh like this because he is the exclusive creator, because he's the sovereign creator. He has a right to do things like this and he has an authority over everything in his creation. But one of the things that you see happen with these signs as they're performed is that there's these magicians, these magicians, they do similar with their secret arts. And the short of it is this, they use drugs and demons. Which you can, you know, kind of uh, imagine how they would be thinking that they're seeing certain things happen. But what happens when people think that they're seeing these other serpents because they're like, hey, we just had some drugs and we had some guys talk to some demons and now, now it looks like our magicians can also make some staff serpent things. Well, here's what it says. It says what happens after that event is that Aaron's staff swallowed those. That was not an illusion. <laughs> but what that communicates is that God can make what they trust in totally disappear. He can totally swallow it up and show them you actually have nothing. You actually have no power. Uh, These gods that you appeal to actually don't exist at all. God is showing that I'm not only coming after you to break you, I'm also going to break all your weapons in the process because I'm the only one who has dominion over absolutely everything. And I want you to know that. The staff serpent miracle sign shows God's sovereignty over evil. There isn't anybody else like him that has this kind of creation power and control. And this is an attack not only on Pharaoh and his servants, but the supernatural powers behind him. You remember, the serpent was just Satan's mascot. Pharaoh is just Satan's mascot. Just like the future Antichrist is just Satan's mascot. There's an invisible power behind these. And God is asked. He's also going after attacking those powers in this. And as you see, everything's going to according to God's plan. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He doesn't listen. And his heart is particularly hardened with strength. You're hearing uh, that there's different types of hardening in this text as I'm I'm reading from the, the Legacy Standard Bible And they help to bring out that there's three different words used for hardening. And I'll explain those a little bit later. But in this case, his heart being hardened with strength is that he was hardened against God's will, which was according to God's word. Now what's interesting about this is that you see Pharaoh wants what God wants. Pharaoh wants what God wants. Pharaoh is doing exactly what God wants him to do. And he wants to do it. You see, Pharaoh isn't outside of God's control. Pharaoh Pharaoh wants to hold out all the way to the end. He wants to resist Yahweh to the very end. But that's exactly what Yahweh wants him to do, and he's given him the strength 
to do that very thing. Now, does Pharaoh know that he's under God's control? No, he just knows that he wants to do the thing that he's doing. But this also shows how much control God has over the whole situation. As the text repeats, all of these things are happening as Yahweh had spoken. Everything centers around God's word and his creation, and everything works according to the counsel of his word. You probably heard in this text as we work through it how all of the language connects into God's creation. Things like, and there was mourning, or God said, and it was so. Uh, You're hearing about the water, the land, the sky, man, dust, all of these things. All of this creation language to show that God owns and controls all of these things. And the plagues teach that there's only one God who created and controls those things. There isn't anybody that he shares that with. He controls the natural and supernatural, the visible and invisible. But God also teaches that he's the God who retaliates for attacking his people, that he will execute justice for them. And you see that in how he progressively breaks down Pharaoh in Egypt while instructing others that Yahweh is the only creator and that he won't share his glory with another. Now, Pharaoh's hardened heart. If you have a legacy standard Bible, you'll see this. If you don't, you can just write it in there somewhere. But in 7.3, that hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a word that has to do with his heart being hardened with stiffness so that Pharaoh would stiffly reject the command (coughs) to let my people go. It's a way to say that Pharaoh was hard-handed, which his hand would ultimately be broken by the strong hand of Yahweh. He would go from being hard-handed with stiffness to broken-handed. If you look in 713, it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened with strength. The idea is that he's hardened with strength to not listen. He's hardened with strength to not obey God. Now, we could think of this as that he's hard-headed. He's hard-headed against God's word. He doesn't want to listen to it. He doesn't want to obey it. And the third other use of this, of a different type of hardening is found in verse 14, 714, that his heart was hardened with firmness. This means he was you know, dull or unresponsive to the obvious thing to do. Uh, when you see Yahweh, the creator of all things, attacking you, what's the obvious thing to do? Is the obvious thing just oppose him, tough it out, maybe you'll win. The the obvious thing is stop it. Stop opposing him. Bow the knee. And in this we see that Pharaoh is hard-hearted. He's hard-hearted of even turning to Yahweh when it's the most obvious thing to do in the situation. What these three different words for hardening communicate is that Pharaoh was hard-headed, hard-handed, and hard-hearted. He was strengthened to against listening to God's word, and he was firmly too dense to follow God's wisdom, and he stiffly dug in his heels until God made him bow and beg. And one of the idolatrous notions that he was breaking down within Egypt's religion was this idea that the Egyptians believed that the freedom of a person resided in their heart. Within their heart, they had the ability to choose to do anything. And in Pharaoh's case, to have the freedom to choose to listen or to not listen. We would, in our own language today, refer to this as the idea of free will. But what God does here is he totally breaks down that idolatrous notion and shows that you don't have that kind of freedom. You don't have that kind of ability. You can't choose to listen if you want to. You can only listen if I make you listen, and you will not listen if I make you not listen. Listen, which raises a question in some people's mind, which the Apostle Paul answers in Romans chapter 9. If you want to follow me there, I'm going to read from 9.19 in how 
Paul communicates God is God. How Paul communicates that when it comes to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, the reason that he did that was to make something known about himself. He didn't do it so that we would have philosophical speculation about who's the chargeable cause of evil. Who wants to to ask God that question? Say, God, I was just thinking about you today and just wondering, are you the, like, the charge? Could you, like, could we say that the reason that evil happens is you? Like, you're the chargeable cause of evil? Like, who has the right to ask God a question like that? What Paul is confronting here is he says, it's blasphemous to answer questions like that. Paul is at the top of his voice in this text, rebuking the idolatry of anyone who had asked the questions that he asked here in Romans 9.19. He says, when you think about this idea of God having mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see, this is all about the glory of God. He says, if you get this wrong, you rob God of glory and you worship an idol. You can't get this wrong. You can't question God. His ways are inscrutable. Pharaoh asked a question like that himself in Exodus 5, 2. He said, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I also will not let him go. Well, as we see in this text, that question, who is Yahweh? God's answering it. He's answering it in a very big and unmistakable way when he turns the water into blood. Why is it that Moses meets Pharaoh at the water? What had happened at the water previously? Well, Pharaoh would go out supposedly as the incarnate God of light, the Pharaoh God known as Ra. And he would go out and tell the water God what he would be doing that day. He would go out to perform his religious rituals. And at this point, as Pharaoh goes out to the water, You see, Moses has moved from defense to offense. Moses is standing by the water that he would have been drowned in. And Moses takes his stand at the place where he was delivered from death. And Pharaoh walks out to the water to reap what he sowed at the Nile of planned parenthood. Blood in the water. And you see that God is going to use Satan's own weapon against himself, the weapon of death, and that God's going to avenge what Pharaoh did. God will not be mocked. His people will not go without justice. There's something about this text that helps us to understand why it is that there is abortion in the world and why it's so satanic. If you think back to Genesis 3.15, you remember that there's only two families on the earth. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman who had come and saving his family, it says that he would be wounded on the heel, that there would be some sort of wound in the saving of his people. And as you go on in Scripture, you find out that the way that this salvation works is through God making a sacrifice. That God, when he came to cover Adam and Eve, that he sacrificed something that took on the death that they deserved in their place. Then when you come later to 
Abraham to learn more about the seed of the woman and the sacrifice and the salvation. You see more of it taught in Abraham and Isaac at the almost sacrifice of Isaac, his son, his only son. And so it comes to be known that God's salvation is going to be through a son, an only unique son. And Satan, who opposes him, doesn't have any new ideas. He can only offer counterfeits on God's ideas. So it's like, okay, you're going to come up with some sort of counterfeit salvation that involves the sacrificing of sons. Well, what do you do? Well, you tell people, we have to sacrifice the sons of the Hebrews in order to save ourselves from being overthrown. It's the counterfeit idea of salvation that if we can kill those babies, we'll be saved. You see that same sort of concept with Herod later in the New Testament before Jesus is born. It's like, I have to protect my kingdom. And you other people aren't going to be safe or or comfortable if this king of the Jews is born. But after that king of the Jews is born and you can't stop the family line, which leads to that singular seed of the woman, well, what do you do? Kill everybody. Not just the baby boys, kill, kill the girls too. Make the sacred sacrament of society abortion. Because what do people say? What are the reasons for having an abortion? Climate change. There's too many people that'll heat up the earth. It's going to melt the ice caps and we'll all drown in a global flood. That's kind of ironic to come up with that idea. But they see it as a, a way of salvation. And they'll say, well, if we have too many people that are born, it'll take away the comforts of this life. We'll lose things. We've got to save ourselves, so we've got to kill people. People see that salvation comes through the sacrifice of a child, but they think that it's through abortion that they'll obtain the salvation that they so desire. That's Satan's counterfeit. But what we know is that them being given over to that and their hearts being hardened in that way is a sign of his judgment and wrath upon them. But we also know the truth of that son who was sacrificed in our place for our sins so that we would be adopted from being children of wrath like that to being sons of the Most High God. In verse 17, it says that when this happens, when the the water is turned to blood, verse 17, it says, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. By this you shall know that I'm sovereign over everything that happens, that I'm the God of retribution. You mess with my people, I will come for you. You will know that there is no God over the water except me. And in God also, when the water is struck and it's turned to blood, it communicates that the gods who they thought controlled the water, all they can do is bleed. They don't control anything. But it's also a warning shot to Pharaoh. That he says, I'm not only going to kill your gods, I'm coming for you too. And he's doing all of this because God cares about his people. You remember that back in Exodus chapter 2 with the despairing sons of Israel. said, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew. And he goes on to display that he knew and that he cares in the most severe sort of love shown in bringing out vengeance for those sons. We didn't make it through the nine plagues. We're going to have to stop there and we'll pick up, Lord willing, on another day. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, who is like you, so severe in your wrath, but so loving? 
to even display your love in a retribution like we see in these plagues, to see the immensity of your power over creation, not only over water, but even all the way down to the heart of Pharaoh. We pray that we would not be a people who would be perplexed by these things or question you in these things, but to receive the comfort that knows that you are our Father. And for those who would mess with your people, that they mess with you and you know how to take care of those things. We pray that you would help us to see that you alone have glory, that all glory and honor and dominion belongs to you and to your name, that you are the God over absolutely everything in creation, that you're sovereign even over evil, that you can control that and that we can rest in you despite whatever great evils we may see in our own lifetime, that we can know you're in control and you're doing exactly what you promised. And what you've promised is exodus. You've promised deliverance, but you've also promised destruction and you'll do it. You'll destroy all the old things, all of the sin, all of the enemies, and you'll bring us into the new things where there's no more sin and no more enemies. May our hearts, as we hear this text, not be hardened to them, but soften and excited at the realities that you're our God and you're stronger than we ever could have imagined and that you will indeed deliver us. You are God. There is no one like you. You are God and there is no other. Amen. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what do we do until then? Well, the last words of 2 Peter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.